No, it's not. It's basically a series of essays and blogs that I've written over a long period of time. Um, and it focuses in large part on my understanding of cities and 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 what what I call urbanism and how I was shaped uh, in understanding how cities work and in how humans any human settlement works uh, and how they improve our lives and also improve our prosperity. That's Bill Fulton. He's been the mayor of Ventura, California, planning director for the city of San Diego, and spent eight years at the Kinder Institute for Urban Research at Rice University in Houston, Texas. I'm Josh Durso for FingerLakes1.com, and this week's Sunday Conversation is all about Bill's new book, Place and Prosperity, How Cities Help Us Connect and Innovate. Urban planning has a question rooted in it that we've heard an awful lot about since the coronavirus pandemic. What should cities of the future look like? Bill's book, Place and Prosperity, answers that question, but it does it in a way that's easily digestible and really insightful. So, how did Bill, an Auburn, New York native who went on to serve in some incredibly prominent roles across the U.S., become one of the most influential people in urban planning, a life of experience, and documenting it along the way? Primarily by growing up in Auburn and then living for 25 years out in Ventura, California, um, to smaller cities, but cities that I have think have tremendous qualities of place, which really, which really um, uh, affected me and shaped me. Uh, so I'll, there's a lot of different things in the book about a lot of different places. Um, a good portion of the book is about California, but, but the, but the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the cornerstone essay is about Auburn and there's a, a several other things about upstate New York and central New York in the book. I thought that part of it was really interesting. Um, obviously, from our, our past conversations and our past interviews, I know that Auburn played an incredibly large role in, in you morphing into what you morphed into. Uh, as a professional, I'm curious, um, how did you balance that while you're actually going through? And I'm sure there were essays that weren't included, some that maybe were close to being included. Um, how did you balance that and kind of navigate the process of putting this together with what would be the most important stuff? That's a really good question. Um, I, I wrote another essay about Auburn, which was about Auburn's uh, factory and industrial history, which did not go in the book. Um, what I'd like to do someday is write a book about Auburn uh, uh, being both a factory town and a historically an abolitionist town and the relationships between those two things, because that's really fascinating, revolving around Harriet Tubman and William Seward, but also around uh, industrial leaders in Auburn like David Osborne, uh, who was the originator of the main factory in Auburn back in the 19th century. So <clears throat> there was a lot of stuff that was left out. Um, a lot of things I wrote a long time ago, I left out. Uh, one of the first one of the first stories I ever covered as a young reporter for the Post Standard in Syracuse was the planning instruction of the Carrier Dome. Uh, that what what and and uh, I left that out too. I decided that was too old, uh, even though it was an interesting story. So I really tried to focus on uh, tightly on the 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 pieces about my growing up in Central New York that really helped shape me as a as a as both first a journalist and then an urban planner. Um, and of course, I wrote a, a couple of new pieces in the front, including one about how I came to understand that there was such a thing as urban planning uh and and began to 
connect that back to my growing up in Auburn. And you're going to be coming back to Auburn here uh, in just a few short weeks. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that event you have coming up, a book signing. Uh, to yes, um, we're going to have a book, a book event and a book signing in Auburn for this book. It'll be on Friday, September 23rd. It'll be at 7 p.m. and it'll be at the Willard Chapel um, uh, in Auburn. And it'll be a fundraiser for the for the Willard Chapel. Chapel, as you know, and and as many of your um, uh, listeners know. Uh, the Willard Chapel is a spectacular building. It is the last remaining um, building from the Auburn Theological Seminary, and it has a, a spectacular Tiffany interior. Uh, and it was saved in the 1990s from demolition through extraordinary efforts by uh, a number of people in Auburn, including V.J. Mytel and, and Mike Long, who worked for the planning department at the time. And one last question on the on the technical side before we start to get into the the guts of of the book and how interesting it was. Um, how did you choose Island Press, and what was that process like for you choosing a publisher? Yeah, I was not sure if anybody would publish this collection of essays. Um, and so what I did what what I finally did, I was thinking of publishing it myself, which I've done on previous books. But what I what I decided, but I had a relationship with with uh, the uh, chief editor at Island Press uh, because of a book I had written a long time ago in collaboration with um, the architect Peter Calthorpe, which was called The Regional City, uh, which was a pretty influential book at the time about, about how you shape metropolitan areas. So I essentially sent a manuscript to the editor of Island, not sure whether she would buy the book, um, and we went back and forth uh, on the shape of the book and what would be in and what would be out. It was a very interesting process to have uh, a, an outside editor say, no, you shouldn't put that one in. Yes, you should put that one in. That, uh, but Island is very active in environmental and urban planning. Uh, the, uh, um, they just published a very influential book on land use and zoning called Arbitrary Lines by a guy named Nolan Gray. Uh, which was the which is I think the number one urban planning book on Amazon. So they're a very influential publisher in the field. I had a relationship with them. I felt very good about the editorial process I went through with the with the editor in chief there. So I'm I'm happy that Island published the book. What was the uh, what was the timeline from uh, not necessarily from when it was a nugget in your in your brain to to publish, but when you first started working on this and started trying to figure out what was and wasn't going to make the cut. Uh, from the time that I first started, I started working on this during the uh, pandemic because all of a sudden I wasn't going to the office. I had more time. Uh, I had a little bit of energy and uh, I started looking through all of the stuff that I had collected over. I had had this idea for this book called Place and Prosperity, a series of essays for quite some time, uh, going back several years. Uh, but particularly uh, during my years in Houston uh, and, and working at Rice University, I had added a number of important essays, including the big Auburn um, uh, uh, urban renewal essay. Um, and so probably from the time that I started thinking about putting this together to the time the book actually got published, that was probably 18 months um, it probably took um, me four or five months to put together a manuscript, another six months of going back and forth with uh, with Island Press about what uh, what shape the book would be, what would be in, what would be out, and another six months for them to produce it. 
Okay, so let's start right there with the title, uh, Place and Prosperity. Uh, what is that link and, and why did you choose that to be the title uh, when you're trying to come up with this uh, outline? In a certain way, it is simply the twin uh, uh, pillars of my own career and what I have written about and worked on over my career. I'm an urban planner, uh, so I'm very interested in what we call place, the qualities of specific places, what we urban planners call the built environment look, look like. But at the same time, over the years, I have... Um, also specialized in my career on, on economic development. That is to say, working with cities to try to figure out how they can uh, maintain and improve their prosperity uh, through business growth and things like that. And during that time, and and uh, uh, Auburn did play an important role in, in my shaping this for a variety of reasons, not just the place part, but the prosperity part. Um, uh, over time, I began to believe that those two things are linked. And that you usually can't have prosperity without having a strong sense of place, and you usually can't create a strong sense of place without also having prosperity. Um, in in Auburn and the other cities in upstate New York, which have such wonderful qualities of place, not just Auburn, but Ithaca, Corning, Aurora, Scanning Atlas. Uh, I was in Seneca Falls recently, actually uh, uh, doing uh, doing the museum tours, and. And all of those cities, Geneva, have wonderful qualities of place from the time when they were incredibly prosperous in the late 19th, in the 19th and early 20th century. Rochester, too. I was in Rochester recently. Um, so it was the prosperity of the industrial era that allowed the creation of these wonderful places. Uh, at the same time, now, today, there's tremendous, I guess you might call it place competition, um, uh, where uh, it used to be cities would specialize in a particular thing. And if you wanted to work on that particular thing, you had to go to that city. So for example, I live in Houston. In the old days, if you were a petroleum engineer, where else in the world are you going to move to? It's 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 the Hollywood of, of oil and gas, right? So you would move to, and, and similarly, as I write elsewhere in the book, um, you know, Los Angeles was, was the center of the entertainment industry and you had to be there. Um, nowadays, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is remote work and technology, we don't have to be in any particular place in order to uh, in order to have a in order to have a career. And so, cities that want to prosper have to up their game, up their uh, uh, place amenities in order to attract people. And, and one of the things I've observed, having been in the Finger Lakes a lot in the last couple of years, although I still live in Texas is that during the pandemic, the place qualities of central New York and the Finger Lakes have become much more apparent to people from farther away, uh, many of whom are visiting more often, many of whom are moving there. Um, the Finger Lakes, I'm pretty sure, uh, from a tourism point of view, was almost never on the radar screen of anybody in the New York City area. And yet uh, you see tourists and sometimes uh, transplants from New York quite a bit in the Finger Lakes these days. And that's because of the qualities of place, the beautiful natural environment, the Finger Lakes, the wineries, but also the beautiful small towns in the Finger Lakes. So place and prosperity in my mind are intertwined uh, in ways that they cannot cannot be separated. And, and that was a lesson I took away from uh, my 
my early years in Auburn, not only because I say because it was a and is a lovely city, but also because of what I learned uh, from uh, uh, my knowledge of industry and factories and the industrial history of Auburn about economic development. And it's interesting, too, because um, throughout the book, you sort of see these different themes emerge. And one of them is what you referenced earlier with this sort of um, history and good planning being sort of in lockstep with each other. Um, But often when we look at especially uh, cities and smaller communities that are struggling, often that history and development get become at odds with one another or they're different forces pushing against one another. What are some of the success stories, I guess, you've seen over your career uh, in terms of all of those uh, different pieces moving in the same direction? Uh, That's a good question. Oftentimes it's in the smallest. uh, It's in individual districts uh, of cities and some oftentimes it's in uh, the, the smallest villages. So if you think in the Finger Lakes about for example, Aurora and Skinny Atlas, right? Both very expensive, um, small villages, but beautiful. Uh, and they've always been tourist attractions. They've always attracted uh, wealthy people to live there. Um, I think those are examples of, of towns that were so small uh, that uh, th- that large attempts to redevelop them, such as we saw in Syracuse and, and in Auburn and elsewhere, uh, um, uh, bypass them, right? So that's one thing. I think also there are certain places in the country where you've seen either resistance to redevelopment and or uh, a later uh, uh, re-knitting together of the urban fabric. So, for example, probably the city in North, in the United States that probably has the most extensive uninterrupted urban fabric of any in the entire country is probably Charleston, South Carolina, where I, I, I spent a good chunk of time on a project once. And it's truly remarkable. You get a sense of what a late, teen, a late 19th or early 20th century was like, you know, block after block after block after block with no freeways, you know, no big rail lines. Um, what's interesting, I think, now is the desire to knit cities back together by removing some of these uh, uh, some of these big infrastructure projects, particularly freeways, um, that got in the way and disrupted the urban fabric. You know, I, I, I talk about the urban arterial, but but also very relevant is the proposal in Syracuse to basically eliminate I-81 through the center of town, uh, redesignate 481 as I-81 and, and take out I-81 through the center of town and um, and and build a boulevard instead, which is exactly what happened actually very successfully in San Francisco after the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989, the Embarcadero Freeway, which was never completed because of community opposition, uh, was removed and replaced with a beautiful boulevard that reinvigorated the entire city. So uh, Rochester has a, has a very similar um, proposal. And as I read the book, I was thinking back to our last conversation where a good chunk of it we were talking about, uh, you were talking about the um, development of what most people would think about as like micro cities within the city um, and how that's kind of the real, uh, the best approach to developing a, a total ecosystem is creating um, these smaller ecosystems around neighborhoods. Is that kind of the the playbook that 
would be most viable, even, you know, looking forward now past 2022? Yes, I think that, well, I think that any successful city is a series of neighborhoods and a series of business districts, all of which knit together. So um, uh, even in cities that have been extremely disrupted by, say, freeway construction, there are still very strong neighborhoods. They're just separated from other neighborhoods by the freeways or other large infrastructure projects. Uh, I can remember once, uh, but there's nothing more powerful uh, than a small, close-knit neighborhood. I remember, um, uh, I think it was, uh, so uh, um, uh, E.B. White, in his uh, in his famous essay, Here is New York, uh, talked about, which we, in which he talked about how New York City, even Manhattan, is just a series of small neighborhoods, or at least was at the time he wrote the, the essay in 1948. Um, he... he he said he talked about going into a local grocer and and a, uh, a woman who'd walk who'd moved three blocks away, came into the grocery and the grocer couldn't believe he still she still went to the grocery. He said, I thought you wouldn't come here anymore now that you've moved away. Um, and many, you know, traditionally, many American, particularly ethnic neighborhoods uh, were like that. Uh, I spent a lot of time as a teenager in the old Italian neighborhood in in, in Auburn. It was very much like that. Uh, you know, five or six blocks seem like an extremely long distance. But one of the things that we, I think, can do as we begin to knit together these uh, neighborhoods and communities again uh, is link these neighborhoods together so, so that they create a, a greater whole. Because it's not just individual neighborhoods. It's the connection between them and connection of them to uh, to business districts. And a big component of that, it would seem, is transportation. And a good chunk of, of the early part of the book discusses that kind of philosophy of how over time transportation and place have been separated. But um, it seems as though bringing them back together is the right way to be thinking about development in the future, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, there's a lot of people in urban planning who basically think we should discourage or do away with cars i i think that's unrealistic you know uh, personal vehicles are are something that i think we're always going to be with the, the question is how do you treat them back in the 50s and 60s what happened was people were afraid that cities would lose out to suburbs and so they so we built these giant freeways and giant arterials in order to make our cities more like suburbs so you could drive around in them easily, right? I think people realize today um, <clears throat> that you drive differently in different environments. You live out in the country, you drive 60 miles an hour. You live in the city, you drive 25. Uh, and, and that that's okay, particularly in a in the city where there are where things are closer together. And so you might drive slower, but it doesn't take you as long to get from one place to another. And what are your... Looking back at the your early days in Auburn, and then as you transitioned into that planning career, you know, years later, um, there's a portion of the book where you talk about getting your hands on an engineering report. You called it sobering. Um, it seemed like kind of an eye-opening moment. Um, what was that like? All that time had passed, and then kind of having this flash from your past be right back in about front of you, and then having the new like the new context to go along with it. Uh, you mean the engineering report from Auburn? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a so um, I lived in Ventura, California for 25 years. Um, the guy who was the planning director in the next town over Oxnard was a guy named Dick Maggio, who actually had gone to Cornell 
planning school and started his career as a planner in Auburn in the 60s. He worked on, uh, for example, the um, he worked on the renovation of, of Emerson Park, the Emerson Park Pavilion back in the 60s, um, because it was pretty run down before that. The old timers will remember it was quite run down. So one day Dick gives me this report, which is a report from the Auburn Planning Commission in 1965. Uh, which has a lot of traffic and engineering data in it that says that says basically uh, downtown Auburn is about to die. Downtown Auburn had had every every business in town was in downtown at that time. And one of the things I describe in the book is, you know, I don't ever remember going to a business that, that was not downtown as a kid. I never went to a doctor's office that was not downtown. I never went to a bank that was not, et cetera. Uh, but in but of course the main drag in Auburn as in many other uh, upstate cities or central New York cities is US 20. And so there was a lot of traffic going through Auburn, a lot of through traffic. And the question became, how do you make sure the through traffic um, gets through Auburn quickly? Uh, and that took precedence over retaining downtown Auburn as a as a place. It was very eye opening. And as I say in the book, um, uh, uh, the weird thing that happened in Auburn, that I don't I never saw happen in any other city was, of course, the arterial was built, which tore through a lot of the old neighborhoods, including the one my father grew up in, Five Points. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, uh, 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 at the same time, two blocks away, Auburn built this loop road, right? Uh, uh, these two things were going on at the same time. Why they did both of them, I'll never know. Um, uh, but... Uh, as I say, and I talked, it was interesting, after I wrote that essay, I talked to a lot of people that either I grew up with or old timers in their 80s and 90s who were still around Auburn. And basically, the the story was, you know, they thought they were saving the town. They thought they thought this and this was not uncommon for American cities at that time. They thought this was necessary for the city to to continue to survive. And of course, the city changed in ways that couldn't have been predicted uh, in the subsequent decades, especially with the closing of so many of the factories, which in 1965, no one really was predicting. Um, so, uh, you know, there's that old joke, we must we must destroy the city to save it. And and that was the attitude, I think, of a lot of people at that time. But but uh, one of the things I think is wonderful about all of these upstate cities now, all these central New York cities, and I see it in Auburn, is that even though the downtown was compromised, uh, it's come back and it's thriving. Um, and what's interesting is the areas where uh, uh, buildings were taken out for the loop road are dead, and the areas where the old buildings are still there, such as, for example, around Prison City Brewing in Auburn, are thriving. Uh, and, and that's a really interesting lesson for the long term. The people love uh, intimate urban fabric, and they love to be able to walk around. Even if they drive to Prison City and Park, they like to be able to go there, sit outside, walk around that neighborhood, as I do. So, uh, of course, you've you've worked you've worked not as a planner, but you've you've worked in Auburn. Obviously, you live in Houston. You've worked in Ventura, California, San Diego, etc. Um, what is like the singular? If you had to pick like one thing that you see all of these places have done right to at least get the ship moving in the right direction. What is that like guiding compass or that one thing, that one action that can sometimes get things going? It's, cre it's using the existing urban fabric you have to create districts, even small districts, 
where people can walk. Right. Uh, people love to do that. As I say, even if they drive into that district, and when I think about just about every place that I've lived, uh, that has been the quality, and that's been the quality that has returned uh, over the last 20, 30 years. That didn't used to be valued, now it is. Um, uh, uh, when I lived in Ventura, downtown Ventura all, had a similar experience to downtown Auburn. Uh, the freeway was pushed through, the mall came in, businesses left. Uh, now it's been similar to downtown Auburn, reinvented as a place for arts and culture and restaurants and so forth. Uh, similarly, when I lived in San Diego, I lived in Little Italy, which is maybe the most vibrant urban neighborhood in the entire country. Uh, so vibrant, I probably couldn't afford to live there now. Uh, <laughs> But there's people on the street, again, If even if people drive there, there's people on the street all the time sitting outside. Of course, in San Diego, you can do that year round with the restaurants. Um, but if it, it, anything, if I could say it's anything, and, and actually, interestingly enough, the pandemic reinforced this idea because all throughout the country, it encouraged uh, outdoor dining. Um, and cities across the country relaxed their rules about using the, the sidewalks and the public right-of-way for restaurants. Um, New York did, for New York City did in a huge way. And I think that has, now that the pandemic, now that the pandemic part of COVID has mostly passed us, nevertheless, I think that experience of place uh, is something that people value now more than they used to. And to get back to the prosperity part, the economic development part, um, I think the bottom line is if you if you want to attract and retain businesses and attract and retain uh, talent, uh, talented employees and workers, you have to have these qualities of place for them to experience because that's what people want now. It's not all urban and downtowns. There's also um, uh, natural environment, trails, uh, biking. Those things have become more important, too. Sometimes that intertwines with sort of an urban fabric and sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm curious because you mentioned the Syracuse example with I-81, um, and I live in a suburb of Rochester, and the Interloop is kind of this uh, constantly discussed thing that that did yeah. what you're describing. Um, the inertia that I see as as a reporter um, within these communities, when elected officials or planning folks are talking about the prospect of filling in, eliminating, rerouting, um, the inertia seems to be pretty palpable. Um, what is, how does the conversation happen to make it feel less daunting? Obviously rerouting an entire interstate is daunting, but how do, how do you approach that as a planner to a community without making it feel like moving heaven and earth at the same time? I think, well, Infrastructure projects take a long time to plan and build, uh, particularly with the environmental laws uh, that we have, both um, the federal environmental law and in New York, the state environmental law. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one thing. <clears throat> and of course, uh, it, uh, and such an infrastructure project is incredibly expensive. Uh, and, and so these projects are incredibly expensive and can take forever. I was um, talking the other day to a friend of mine in Boston who had written a book about big infrastructure projects focusing on uh, what in Boston they called the big dig, which was uh, burying the central artery under the, which was an elevated road under the center of the city. That's a project that probably took 30 years start to finish and cost $14 billion. Um, 
So sometimes it takes an enormous, sometimes it takes a very dramatic event to focus, uh, to focus people on that, uh, on the inner loop or on I-81. Um, in San Francisco, as I said, the Embarcadero Freeway, that was the most, that's the most analogous situation I can think of to the I-81 situation. And the, and, and the desired uh, uh, boulevard is very similar. Um, in San Francisco, the Embarcadero Freeway was it was never completed because of neighborhood opposition. It just sort of ended, and then it fell down in an earthquake. So they had to do something. Uh, so that, but then the, that gave them an opportunity to rethink uh, and and restructure what Embarcadero, what the Embarcadero built, the Embarcadero looked like, uh, and also gave them the largely federal money to to be able to do it. I, I think that driving aspect now that we that might lead to success with i81 is the biden administration's intense interest in removing some of these freeways um and restoring uh, uh uh the secretary of transportation pete Buttigieg, the former mayor of south bend indiana uh certainly understands neighborhood fabric uh i've been to south i went to south bend recently and it has wonderful neighborhood fabric not just around notre dame but elsewhere and um the fact that Buttigieg and others view uh, the original construction of um, of the freeway, such as I eighty one, as essentially a, a racist move that was attempted to seal attempted to seal off the black neighborhoods, which is not entirely untrue, I think gives it in this post George post George Floyd era a kind of a momentum. So it, you can talk about it forever, but usually you need a particular event or some kind of thing that gives it momentum. And and I think we're going to see that now. We see we see conversations about the inner loop. We see conversations about eighty one. We see conversation about taking on the Skyway in Buffalo. Right. Uh, this level of conversation about this sort of thing is not anything I've ever seen before in forty or fifty years. In, in some of those other um, components in the book that that you describe as making a complete neighborhood, jobs, uh, housing. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on the the housing side of it because it seems to be there is so much focus now on the housing market in general. Um, where does housing fit into that plan of how to build? Do you build the housing first? Do you build the jobs first? Do you bury the roads first? What like which it, when cities are going um, through this, what are they yeah. what are they picking yeah. or choosing? I think we're in a situation where if I had to say it, I'd say the jobs are probably where they are, particularly in upstate New York, where um, you don't have the industrial base they used to have. The jobs, in large part, are uh, often institutional jobs. Syracuse University, U of R and RIT, um, uh, though, uh, those are where the job centers are. When I was in Rochester a couple months ago, we drove past the old Kodak headquarters, and and a guy, the guy who was a, giving us a tour said at one time he was one of 3,000 Kodak employees in the, in the headquarters in downtown Rochester, and now there's like 120, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't think you start with the jobs. I think you probably start with the housing. And um, what's happened is in almost every city, even cities that have economically struggled, the neighborhoods that have handsome old housing and good play, uh, quality of place have come back and often become quite expensive, even even in cities that are otherwise pretty cheap. Uh, this only accelerated during COVID. Um, so I I think uh, 
one of the opportunities you see if you uh, bury the road or take the road down is that creates the opportunity for new land, right? Um, you are essentially creating new buildable land that that people can um, take advantage of. Uh, <clears throat> when I was um, when I was the mayor of Ventura, uh, I worked with a number of other people in Southern California on the possibility of uh, of of uh, our freeway in Ventura was in a trench. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it separated the downtown from the Pacific Ocean. And if you could cap the freeway, you would essentially create new land on which you could build new stuff. So I think all these things go go together, go hand in hand. Um, and one final question here to sort of put a bow on all of this. Um, when someone reads this book, uh, Place and Prosperity, your your hope for them is what in terms of takeaway, whether they're initiated or not in the planning uh, space <laughs> or even just the, the general political sense? I think there are a couple of things. One is that I hope somebody who is not an urban planner by training walks away from this book thinking, oh, uh, place does matter. And the experience of place that I have on a daily basis really does matter to me. And the quality of the place that I live in actually does matter to me. And, and, and oh, uh, that's actually re- the result of a variety of political and economic decisions that, that I should be part of. Uh, I think too many people don't ever think about that. Uh, the other thing I think for people, uh, particularly in the political, governmental and economic realm, is to understand the importance of the quality of place in creating prosperity. I go back to what I said about downtown Auburn. You know, the, 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 the corner that's got the historic fabric is doing great. The corner where the loop road is is, doing, is not doing great. So I, I think it's people who never think about the fact that they are experiencing place every single day. I hope they walk away understanding not only that it's important, but that it's a set of conscious decisions that they can participate in that created that. And, and also that 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 is intertwined with the economic prosperity of their town.